people tend to think in terms of, or at least like to think often, good or bad, right or wrong, black and white, no qualifications, just stark dichotomies. We like to think at one end of the spectrum or the other, and the gray areas can be frustrating. And the question, for instance, if the glass is half full or half empty can be infuriating because it's not obvious. It's a matter of perspective. And the Corinthians, in our passage here, seem to operate on a one option or the other paradigm concerning principles about marriage and sexuality. Now, as we've noted already, as as we thought about all of the portions of this so far, 1 Corinthians 1 to 6 was about a crisis of authority in this congregation in, in Corinth, and they had questioned the gospel's authority by desiring rhetoric over that message, Paul's apostolic authority by wanting flashy teachers, the church's authority by neglecting discipline and by suing each other, and even Christ's own authority by engaging in sexual immorality. And that was what Paul dealt with in the first six chapters. Now, however, he transitioned in chapter 7 from addressing that crisis of authority to dealing with issues about which they had written to him. So he'd already received a letter. He's responding back to them in 1 Corinthians. And the first issue concerned marriage. They wanted an absolute right or wrong position. Paul, tell us, which one is good or bad, marriage or singleness? Don't qualify it. What's the right thing? And Paul's response was something like, well, are you married or are you single? Because that's the one that's good for you. And so the main point, as we think about these first nine verses, is that marriage and singleness are good depending on God's gifting. So let's think first about the context for this chapter, this discussion of Paul's. The whole chapter, whole chapter seven, is more or less devoted to issues of marriage and singleness. It's too big to deal with at once. And so this sermon is dealing with issues raised about marriage's goodness versus singleness's goodness in verses 1 to 9. So there are three distinct points or aspects of this discussion that we can examine from this passage, but they all relate back in some way to an issue that the Corinthians raised a letter to Paul. So, verse 1, Paul states, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, if you look at your Bible, the ESV has put this in quotation marks because they think the best arguments favor that and have support in ancient interpretations of this passage that this sentence is a quote or something like a paraphrase of a quote, at least, from the letter that the Corinthians wrote to Paul. Now, we, as we think about Paul's response, we need to think carefully and pay good attention 
not just to how he responded for the sake of understanding his response, but also to understand the Corinthian error. What exactly was the problem? And it's not as straightforward as we might think. Because notice that Paul's discussion is entirely about marriage in the subsequent verses, which indicates that the Corinthians had applied this claim that we should just avoid sexual relations altogether. And they had applied this specifically to marital intimacy. So the first thing that we should notice is the direct application about this problem is that sin is insanity. It doesn't make sense because if we remember the last section of chapter 6, Paul had to remind them with three heavy theological arguments that sexual relationships outside of marriage are immoral. And now he had to remind them that sex within marriage is good and required. And this has broader... But I mean, you have to imagine that Paul is thinking, you guys have gotten this totally backwards. What's wrong with you? And that seems pretty clear on this issue. But this has broader application than just this topic. Because we all have to remember how easy it is when sin takes hold to convince ourselves that insane things are right. They had exactly reversed what is good, and Paul had to untangle a very messy set of ideas about what is good about marriage and about singleness. So it it seems like those who denied God's law and those who did the goodness of marriage's physical benefits were asking Paul for some polarized decision whether sex was entirely good in every situation or entirely bad in every circumstance. But Paul responded previously and here that actually that answer depends on many things, but namely on your present marital status. Previously, sex was wrong if you are not married to the person. But here it's wrong to neglect physical intimacy if you are married to the person. Which brings us to the first major feature of this passage in verses 2 to 5. But the context is a deeply distorted Corinthian view about sexuality. Let's think now about the command in verses 2 to 5. So many have thought, based on these three verses, that Paul was less than romantic when he said that married people should have their spouses because of the temptation of sexual immorality. But before assuming that Paul was diminishing marriage's purposes and dynamics to a help for physical desires, 
We have to understand that Paul did not mean the word have here as in get married, but as in have a husband or wife in reference to physical intimacy. Paul's point was not simply seek marriage if you have difficulty containing your physical desires, but his point was that if you are married, then you have to be physically intimate with your own husband or wife. And that helps us make sense of verses 3 to 5 as a further explanation of why husbands and wives are charged to be physically intimate. Paul was more concerned with the spiritual help that we find in marital blessings than with some romantic ideal. He phrased his instruction to have intimacy in terms of rights, which is not typically how we tend to cast those things. The the Greek word here, though, has to do with obligations, something we're supposed to do for another. Now, the marital relationship entails that we understand when we are unwell or particularly burdened. But biblical marriage also entails that we not overuse excuses or even neglect intimacy. Marriage means, Paul outright says, that our spouse has authority over our body, which Paul clearly said is mutual. Which is an astounding assertion of mutual view in marriage of man and woman. Our bodies are no longer our own, but are given to our spouse in love for their good in multiple ways. And again, before assuming that Paul was just only refuting an error that sex was simplistic bad, note that He didn't say it was permissible in marriage, but commanded. Turn and read verse 5 with me. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again. So that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, that, that word deprive is interesting because it's the same word that Paul used in chapter 6, verse 7, that we have translated as defrauded. So to abstain for very long from physical intimacy is to defraud, to rob one another. It becomes an eighth commandment issue in addition to a healthy marriage issue. And then the rest of this verse makes a really potential concession that if a husband and wife agree, they can abstain for a limited time, a set short period with the purpose of using it for prayer. Now, is 
<laughs> there's a difficulty in being delicate here, but it's noteworthy how much time that Paul thought married people should use for this, and it must be significant if it could improve their prayer life together, if they are to abstain. So we should mark that these are not simple permissions, but biblical instructions for our holiness. And so, there's a very obvious application here about what married people should do, and one that I'm for, whether it be fear or awkwardness, I'm not brave enough to say any more pointedly than I have. Uh, but there's a less obvious takeaway here, that you should not now think that you have found your excuse for abstaining since Paul made this concession. First, because he clearly said it was for a short time, and even has the purpose of coming together again. And second, perhaps more pointedly, I would venture in today's era that marital intimacy is not what most interferes with your family prayer life. Paul indicated that since it is something for our holiness to guard us from the devil's traps, married people often and necessarily are to give themselves to one another. And I want, certainly, to promote devotion to prayer in your marriages. You should do what it takes to set aside time to pray together. But before you rush to this short-term agreement, I might encourage you to examine if there are other things in your life that you might be able to cut first. Perhaps we might give up needless entertainment or eat a plain sandwich so that nobody has to take time cooking and use that time to pray together and for strengthening marital relationships. So the command is that husbands and wives meet each other's intimate needs. And now we should move on to think about our callings. So in verses 6 to 7, Paul shifts topics, for which I am thankful. Paul returned to the original problem uh, raised by the Corinthians. They had wanted Paul to say that sex is good or bad, full stop, no qualifications. He responded that in marriage, physical intimacy is absolutely necessary. That said, things are different if you are single, which Paul highlighted in these verses. He admitted, not as a command, but as his wise and inspired opinion, that he preferred people to remain single. There are benefits to being single, which he will explain more fully later in this chapter. In other words, he said, it is, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman if that man is not married and is gifted to stay so. Paul Moore 
extensively address this issue later in this chapter, but suffice it here that Paul clearly saw goodness in singleness, which is a profound point. The next verses qualify that point, but we should not run too quickly to those qualifications, which are most tied to the, to the accidents of his broader discussion, particular for the Corinthians. Because before we even get to the extensive point in weeks ahead, we should mark here that God indeed gives singleness as a gift. I want to say something really bluntly here, that if you are single right now, it is not because God has forgotten you, but because God is giving you that gift right now for this season for your good. So notice that in these verses, Paul did not say better or best, but good. It is difficult not to think back to the early Genesis narratives when God pronounced that the things he created were good, and yet all of them had the potential for development and expansion. We can gather that the gift of singleness, which is good, may not be forever. And because of death, the gift of marriage may not be forever. So verses 8 and 9 address those who had been married but had lost their spouses to death. So, so this charge in verses, verse 8 begins to the unmarried and to the widows. But it seems best to understand unmarried as actually translated to the widowers. Men who have lost their wives? So verses 8 and 9 are not directly to everyone who is not married, plus the widows, which would be redundant, but to men and women who have lost their spouses to death. So it is important that these verses are for those who have lost spouses, Because it clarifies, actually, that Paul thought that singleness is a gift that God might give later. It is significant, really significant, that Paul added here, as I am. Because it seems to tell us that Paul was once married. It's unlikely that Paul achieved the place he had within Judaism without being married because of the requirements in the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin. And so perhaps Paul's wife died, making him an actual widower, which is a very real possibility given the placement of the statement. Or perhaps she abandoned him at his conversion making verses 12 to 16 a very much very much a first-hand perspective for Paul either way though we see 
that Paul became content in his singleness as the gift God gave him for that time. No, he had previously been given a different gift. He expressed that it is good for people who have lost a spouse to remain single, but that's not a requirement. In fact, if someone cannot overcome some of the struggles that come with singleness that may lead them into immorality, then they should marry again. And so Paul stated here, as he would say again in verses 39 and 40, very pointedly, that we are not absolutely limited to one marriage in life, and if your spouse dies, they are free to marry again. Our, our callings are to be faithful in marriage and in singleness as God gives each. And so we should think finally about our contentment. It's worth trying to pull some of it because there's been three aspects to this text and so it's worth trying to pull some points together here. Paul affirmed that marriage is God's gift, but so is singleness. And we ought to take away that the Scripture teaches that there is no one way that Christians have to be, or even that is fully best in regards to marital status. So the the PCA, the Presbyterian Church in America, the denomination that has ordained me as a teaching elder, has this set form that churches complete when they they need to look for a new minister. And I was astounded when I was looking at one point through these various postings that basically every single church required, not preferred, required that their next minister be married. So they had set a standard that neither Paul nor Jesus could fulfill even for their next minister. But it, but even above that, culturally, even in the church, perhaps sometimes especially in the church, oftentimes people will ask, when will we settle down and find a spouse? Which assumes that the mature life path is to marry and, and have kids perhaps after a specific pattern. And Scripture tells us a different story and affirms that believers have their callings whether they marry or remain single. And and I think a particularly important point to note is in verse 7, where Paul plants the difference between those who are single and those who are married, not in anything about the believer but in God and His gifts. So, I really hope that especially right now our singles would hear this point that Scripture tells you that your singleness does not indicate that something is wrong with you, nor that you have necessarily failed to reach an ideal maturity, nor that even God has not heard you 
about your situation if you've asked him to change it. It means that God has called you, at least for this season, to singleness as the gift that he has for you right now. Perhaps there's a special task that he might have you do that cannot be accomplished within the responsibilities of marriage. Perhaps there's something that God has to teach you for your sanctification. Perhaps God has truly gifted you with this calling singleness for your life. But the reason is indifferent because the point is that God values his people whether they are married or single. God has called us to live the lives we lead and to the family dynamics that we have right now. So, whether you embrace your singleness with contentment, whether you wrestle against it, whether you wrestle in your marriages in the ways that Paul has addressed here or in other ways, then this passage has a really particular application for all of you. Every believer is indeed meant for a specific marriage since the church is the bride of Christ. We tend to buck against whatever situation God gives us. And we will fail our marital duties. We will fail our duties in singleness. But God has sent His Son to be the perfect bridegroom in whom every one of us might find true, deep, abiding, perfect satisfaction. At this point, we often note the gospel promises of what Christ has already done for us. But I think it's fitting here that we would note the gospel promises about what Christ still will do for us. He is coming back, and as we've read, there will be a wedding feast. You will be entirely free from whatever burden, whether it be the grief of loss, the burden of fallen singleness, the burden of fallen marriages. And you will have eternity with Christ, who has made you His, if you would take hold of Him by faith. Let's pray. Father God, we are grateful that the foundation of our contentment in this world is not in ourselves, nor in our relationships, nor in our ability to be perfect in our duties in whatever relationships we might have. But the foundation of our contentment is the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who has given himself for us, who has died to take the penalty for our sin, who has risen from the grave to stand as a pledge of our salvation in heaven and intercede on our behalf. And so we pray, whatever situation 
where we find ourselves now, that you would help us seek after and strengthen our contentment in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would find our peace there in him at the foot of his cross, and that we might rejoice that we have a Savior who is returning, who will set the wedding feast before us, and we will have the perfect bridegroom for all eternity. And we pray these things in the wonderful name of Christ. Amen.